Well, good morning. Uh, happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. He has risen indeed. You know, when we see uh, people in the Gospels who encounter the resurrected Christ, they just want to be around him. We see Mary Magdalene holding on to Jesus' feet. Uh, We see the disciples wanting to be in his presence. I believe it's because, for many reasons, uh, but one reason is because uh, we are all glory seekers by nature. We all are attracted to glory. We all want it, and we want to know where to find it, and when we encounter it, we want to hold on to it with all that we've got. You know, I've known that I am a glory seeker uh, for a long time. Uh, I still am, and I I seek now uh, as much as possible to find that glory in Christ alone, Uh, but in my uh, sinful moments that I have, I still seek glory for myself. That was much more pronounced when I was in college. And you could definitely, if you, if you knew me in college, uh, you could just watch me play basketball and know that I was a glory seeker. Uh, man, when I won, I was sky high. And when I did not win, I had, I had a reputation in my fraternity for being the worst cusser of anyone in the whole fraternity. I know that I'm your pastor. It's hard to believe. Uh, but, but I was. I couldn't control myself. When I lost the glory, I just couldn't handle it, and I would, I would lose it. You could also find me on the golf course. Uh, I knew that I was a glory seeker. I actually told the youth about this. They couldn't believe it the other night that I actually uh, cheated my way into the state golf championship. Uh, how I did that is I was, I'm a good golfer, but not a great golfer. But in the regional tournament, I was playing great. Uh, through 11 holes, I was two over. And uh, that's very good uh, for anyone and and good for me. And so I was well on my way to qualifying for state. I got to the 12th tee, and I noticed that to the left, there was a giant river to the left of the fairway. And I I said to myself, whatever you do, don't hit it left. But I did. I hit it left. And the guy that I was playing with, my playing partner, was a good friend of mine. He said, hey, don't worry about it, Corey. You're having a great round. Just hit another one, and I won't tell anybody. And so I said, well, absolutely. So I hit it down the middle, down the middle of the fairway, parred the hole, ended up shooting a 78, and I qualified for the state tournament by one stroke. And I felt good about that in some ways, Um, but it just showed how much of a glory seeker I really am. Now for you to find the place where you seek glory in life, it's probably not on a basketball court. It could be. could be on a golf course. It could be in other areas, like having to do with the success of uh, perhaps your career. How well are you doing in your career? How's the money going? How comfortable are you financially? Is that giving you the glory that you were seeking after when you started that career? If you have children, what about your children, the success and achievement of your children? There's nothing more annoying than a father or mother living vicariously through their kid on the soccer field or uh, any other court where yet they may find themselves. But we find ourselves in that position as parents. Maybe it's your looks. Let me tell you, that's a terrible place to put your hope because the older you get, the worse you begin to look. But yet we still, we still put our hope in the wrong things. I believe when I was growing up, as I reflect back on it, every conversation I was in was really a PR opportunity for me. It was an opportunity 
in that conversation to make much of me in whatever that meant in that situation. We are all glory seekers by nature. I believe that it's all hardwired into our hearts that we want glory. We know that we need it. We know that we need to find it somewhere. Where can we find the glory that we are seeking? Well, here on Easter Sunday, I've chosen Psalm 24, where King David shows us the way to find true glory. St. Augustine, many years after David wrote this, would write, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. David tells us that we can only find glory in a relationship with God Almighty. But how can we have that relationship? That brings us to our first point this morning, which is the question that this passage asks. The question is, who can enter God's presence? We find that in verses 1 through 3 particularly in verse 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. We've just learned in verses 1 and 2 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who can dwell with this creator God, the one who is worthy of all glory, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and be in his presence. We have to answer that great question. God describes, or David describes God's character in two ways. First, he says, when you come to God, you have to ascend a hill. Now, David's words remind us of the position of the holy city of Jerusalem called Zion. It was up on a hill, and in order to get to Zion from any direction, you had to go up. And that was the city of God. God chose that city symbolically because that's where his temple was going to be. That's where his king was going to be. And if you wanted to be where God was, symbolically, you had to ascend a hill. But of course, the symbolism goes beyond just the position of Jerusalem. It shows us the holy, holy, holy nature of our God, that we have to go up to a different place in order to be in his presence. It's not where we find ourselves naturally as human beings. David then secondly says, when we come to God, we must stand in a holy place. This is a reference to the old tabernacle tabernacle or temple where the high priest once a year on the day of atonement would go into the holiest place, the holy of holies, and he would bring blood from a, a slain lamb in. The high priest would bring the blood in and he would plead the blood of the slain lamb over the mercy seat on the day of atonement. And this is meant to show us that God is holy And the only way to enter into his presence is to have blood, perfect blood, that was spilled for us. Who can enter God's presence? That's how the Bible answers the question. You need to go to a high place. You need to go to a holy place. Now, how do we answer that question when we're asked, how do you enter God's presence? Well, we often answer it on our own without getting God's input. When someone is asked the question, why should I let you into heaven? Here are some common responses. Well, I've never done anything really bad, like murdering or abusing or raping someone. But does not murdering or abusing or raping someone qualify for you to enter into God's holy and high presence, God's standard of absolute moral perfection? Of course it does not. 
Or someone might say to the question, why should I let you into heaven? That question being from God. They might say, well, I try hard to do the right thing, and I'm not as bad as a, as a lot of other people are. But is trying hard to do the right thing and being morally better than some other people the standard that God has for entering his presence? No. No, it's not. Or in our age of moral relativism, perhaps the, the most common answer might be, well, if there is a God, I know he must be an ocean of love. He must be a God of love. And so when he sees me, he will just decide to embrace me in all of my imperfections. But is God being an ocean of love? Is God in that moment that he sees you, is he going to jettison his moral perfection? Is he just going to set it aside and say, you know what, I'm not holy. I'm just going to be an ocean of love for you and accept you into my presence. Is that how God responds to us? No, that's not how God responds to us. Shouldn't we call time out on our half-considered, self-referential, relativistic answers to this all-important question for just a minute and, and ask the Lord God Almighty, how do you answer the question, God? How do you answer the question, who can enter into your presence? C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia and many other books, said this in a famous lecture called The Weight of Glory. He said, in the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how God thinks of us. So who can enter into God's presence? The answer is given to us in verse 4. The answer to the greatest of questions is found in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So these are the four things you must do to enter God's presence. Let's go through each of them. You need to, be, you need to have clean hands, a pure heart, not to lift up your soul to an idol, or swear by what is false. We'll unpack each of them for just a minute. First of all, God says, to come into my presence, you need to have clean hands. Clean hands references things that you've done outwardly in your life. We cannot come into God's presence if our hands are dirty with sin, if we have done sin. There's a famous story of Lady Macbeth from Shakespeare where she helps her husband kill King Duncan in her own home. And after the killing, she's trying to wash her hands of the physical blood of King Duncan. Her guilty conscience will not stop bothering her. One night, her servant finds her sleepwalking, still convinced in her subconscious of her guilt. She's washing and scrubbing her hands, trying to get the imagined blood to come off. And as the servant is still watching, she cries out, out damned spot, out I say, what, will these hands never be clean? And we feel that, don't we? Because our hands are dirty like hers. Maybe you've never killed anyone, but you immediately can think of the things that you've done in your life that you are the least 
proud of, that you feel the most guilty about, and we carry that shame and that guilt on our hands. The things that keep you up at night, the heavy load that you carry. God says, people without clean hands cannot come into my presence. Second of all, God says, you need to have a pure heart. So this speaks not to our outward sin, but our inward heart. You need to have a pure heart. Now, if you think about my stories from college, you're like, wow, that's really surprising to hear that about my pastor. Um, If you think about the things that you've done, I can tell you that what has happened on the inside of my heart is far worse than is what has happened on the outside of my life. I mean, our internal life is worse. Our exterior life, as bad as that might be at times, it's, it's at least managed to some degree, but the internal heart screams out with the ugliness that lies behind the cussing and the cheating and the posturing in our lives. Third, God says to come into my presence, you need to not lift up your soul to an idol. You need to have worshipped the living, true God all the time. You need to have not substituted, created things, things that God created like money, like golf, like, like a, a vacation, like a marriage or a relationship, like your children. You need to not substitute created things for the creator. You need to not put your identity in them so that when those things go well, you're sky high, and so when they go poorly, you're low to the ground. You need to have not done that, God says. You need to have worshipped me alone, and again, we find ourselves falling short. And then finally, God says, to come into my presence, you need to not swear by what is false. That means in all your emails, and all your text messages, in all your, your Facebook posts, your Instagram, your Snapchat, in all of the things that you've told other people that you think are true and you found out later it was fake news, all those things, you don't qualify if you've ever lied or ever sworn by what is false. Now, when we encounter the sin in our lives, we, we have two ways that we react to our sin, two ways that are unhelpful. The first way that we can react is we try harder. We try harder to be a good person. But trying harder to be a good person can't make up for all the things that are are broken in your life. Trying harder is not going to help people like you and me very much before a holy God. Or we may think the second thing we can do is we, we just try to minimize it and hope for the best in the end. I'm not sure what to do with all of that. But I'm just going to hope that in the end, everything works out. But is that the best way for us to live? Is God just going to lighten up one day and just let us in to heaven? No. So this is, this is the answer that we can bring to the table. Who can enter God's presence? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, the answer is, on our own, we can't. Absolutely cannot do it. There's no way that you can ascend the hill of the Lord on your own. But now we get to the gospel of grace. This is not the end of the story. The cross and the empty tomb mean that it is not the end of the story. But before Jesus gets to the cross, he has to do something else before he gets to the cross. He has to live a perfect life according to the high and holy standard of God. He had to be the one who had clean hands never sinned outwardly. He had to be the one who had a pure heart, never once sinned in his heart. He had to be the one that never worshiped idols. He never substituted a created thing for 
the creator. Jesus always told the truth. He never lied. He meets the righteous standard of God. And that's where we get to verse 5. When God looks at Jesus, it says, he says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. For Jesus' perfect obedience, Jesus meets the standard and God approves of him and he says of him, you are righteous, you may have salvation for what you have done. For his perfect obedience, he receives blessing instead of judgment. But the big question of the gospel is, if Jesus has done this for us, then how do we get to experience what he did? Can we? Can we have what Jesus accomplished? Well, this is leads us to the third point in the sermon, which is the solution to the problem is this, that Jesus opens heaven for us. He opens heaven for us. We find this in verses 6 through 10. One of the most famous verses in all of the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son who lived a perfect life in all of these ways so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life because Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead for us. We are like a man or a woman on death row. That's where we sit before God. We're on death row and we're there deservingly. There's not been an unjust trial. There's not been fabricated evidence. There's plenty of evidence and we deserve to be there. And we're just waiting on our time. And Jesus Christ walks in and he says to you, I will, I will die in your place. I will be the one who dies in your place. I will go to the electric chair for you. You can walk free. The only way that you can get out of the death penalty is if you accept that offer from Christ, that substitutionary offering His death for your death. His life for your life. It's the only way. And this is the way that God has designed. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Jesus trades his righteousness and freedom for us so that we can walk out free. It's an unfair trade for Jesus that brings us life. How much ours is this grace for us if we trust in Jesus? It's so much ours that in Psalm 24, 4, listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together. He says, we can pray Psalm 24, 4 to God as if it were about us. That's how much we get the righteousness of Christ. He says, insofar as Christ's blood and righteousness have become our beauty and our glorious dress, we can and we should pray the Psalms of innocence as Christ's prayer for us and gift to us. These psalms, too, belong to us through Jesus. So when we pray, we can pray, who has clean hands? I do. I do. Through the goodness of Jesus Christ given to me, I am clean. Who has a pure heart? I do. I have a pure heart because of what Jesus has done for me. I can say I am pure. Who doesn't lift up his soul or her soul to idols? I don't. I don't. Because the way God looks at me, 
as he sees the righteousness of Jesus given to me, not as an idol worshiper, but as someone who worships the one true God. Who doesn't swear by what is false? I don't, through Jesus Christ, I have been given the truth, and I do not live in lies. That's the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We experience the righteousness of Christ so that our sins are forgiven, so that when that question is asked of us, who can enter the high and holy presence of God? The answer is we can. We can because of what Christ has done for us. But of course, today is Easter. It's not just about the cross. So how does this transition over to Christ's work as our, as our resurrected and ascended glorious king? Well, back to what happened in the Old Testament at the Day of Atonement. That, during that day, so a lamb had to be slaughtered, a perfect lamb, and then that the blood of that lamb had to be brought in by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, and the blood had to be shed. Of course, that happened every year, and there was nothing special, actually, about that lamb. It was just God's grace to provisionally say, you know what, for one more year, that lamb and that blood spilled and that ritual, that's enough. But that's not enough. That's not enough to atone for our sins. There needed to be a perfect lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood had to be shed on the altar of the cross. But there had to be more than that. We needed Jesus to be not just the, the lamb whose blood was shed. We needed him to be our great high priest. We needed him to take his own blood and to enter into the real holy of holies, not the, not the one that was on earth, that was this penultimate this secondary picture for us on earth of what it's really like in heaven, we needed Jesus to take his own righteous blood and we needed him to go to heaven. We needed him to enter into the real holy of holies before the real God, the real mercy seat, God the Father. We need him to to be there in heaven in the the throne room of God with all, not just the, the golden angels on the Ark of the Covenant, but all the angels all around We needed him to shed his blood, take his blood, go into the presence of God, and present himself as our Savior. In order to do any of that, he had to be raised from the dead. He had to go in as the first human being into heaven. The the gates of heaven were locked, and Jesus comes to heaven, and he says, I am here to enter into the presence of God. I have made atonement on earth. And now I'm going to present that atonement in heaven. That had to happen in order for God to be satisfied. God was satisfied with the cross. But in order for heaven to be opened up, that blood had to be brought by Christ into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. He had to go first. We needed a forerunner. We needed someone who would go first into heaven. We needed someone who would be raised from the dead first so that we would have new life. We needed him to first go in to heaven. And what we find here at the end of Psalm 24 is a vision of the ultimate day, the final day of atonement. Here the Father sits on the mercy seat where his love and his justice kiss. He's surrounded by angels and we find Christ approaching, Christ approaching the gates of heaven. 
Now, in order to understand this, I mean, you have to read it almost like you're reading Lord of the Rings, okay? It's really, it's kind of different for us to read the Bible that way. I think this is where Tolkien received some of his inspiration, uh, from the, obviously from the scriptures. He was a Christian. But even in, in passages like this, you just see this poetic beauty of the gospel ringing true. So I'm going to read it to you. This would have been sung, it was a psalm, would have been sung in ancient Israel, and it would have been sung as a call and response. The only way that you can understand it is to really hear it in that way. So I'm going to try to read it in that way. So this is the scene. King Jesus has died on the cross. He's been raised from the dead, and the gates of heaven are locked. And he comes before those gates with us behind him. Verse 6, the generation who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So the king is approaching with his followers, streaming out behind him, accompanied by thousands of angels. And the king, Jesus says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. A voice cries out from within the walls, who is this king of glory? A spokesman for Jesus stands up and says, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The group of people lined up behind Jesus, that's you and me, if we trust him by faith, we say, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The voice is repeated behind the walls, who is this king of glory? And then everyone inside the walls, outside the walls, and the angels say, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. And the gates of heaven open up. Now, this is, the only, this is the only key to the gates of heaven. This is the only way that the gates get open is if there's a righteous one. If there's someone who's righteous, who lives a perfect life, who dies on the cross, who becomes the lamb slain on the altar, who then goes himself as the great high priest, brings his own blood into heaven and knocks on the door and he says, I'm here, let me in. And then the gates open up, they open wide. When we follow Jesus as the great captain of our salvation, we who trust him are ushered into the presence of God. We go behind him. We go with Augustine. We go with David, we go with Lewis, we go with Bonhoeffer, we go with Tolkien, we go with you and I, this church, many other churches, all those who say, yes, that is my king, he is my king, only he has lived a perfect life, only he has died, only he has been raised from the dead, only he is the perfect one that I've been seeking after so long, the truly glorious one. So how do you respond to this incredible message of God's salvation for you? How do you respond? I think Psalm 16, 1 and 2 are a great way that you can respond to the message of the good news this morning. David here also writes, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. The transition from being someone who's not a Christian to someone who is a Christian is someone who can say to the Lord, Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. There's nothing in my hands I bring simply to 
thy cross I cling. I have nothing for you, God. And so I take refuge in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his presentation of his blood before the Father. People like you and me who curse and cheat and posture and lie and do whatever we need to do to, to, to be glorious, we need to say of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, apart from you, I have no good thing. People like you and me, like Lady Macbeth, who have these things that we carry around that we've done, and I know some of you carry these things around, and as Christians, we have to lay those things down because the blood of Christ that was shed for us was enough. It was enough to atone for you. You do not need to be better for God. Now, that's something you may not hear other pastors say very often. You do not need to be better for God. Jesus Christ was better. Jesus Christ was perfect. He was righteous. You need to say of the Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. That is Christianity. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And when you say that, apart from you, I have no good thing, but in you, I have every good thing, those damned spots begin to disappear in our lives. We begin to be less motivated out of trying to assuage our guilt and more motivated because of the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. That is Christianity. Christianity is grace-driven, not guilt-driven. God does not want you to pay for your sins through your guilt or your shame. He doesn't want you to because Jesus has already paid for your sins. When the father looked at the son and the father's wrath was poured out on the son for sin, it was done. When Jesus was raised from the dead to give you the grace of God, the Holy Spirit imbuing life into your soul, you have been given life in his name. Taking refuge in the goodness of Jesus will allow you to stop doing something you've been doing your whole life, and that is measuring your goodness or your badness. That's an exhausting way to live. That internal dialogue of, I was pretty good today, I was pretty bad today, I was pretty good in that situation, bad in that situation. That's not Christianity. I know we all do it, but we need to undo that, and the way you undo that is by saying, apart from you, I have no good thing. You can go ahead and admit once for all that you aren't good enough. Make it a final statement. I'm not good enough. Apart from you, though, Lord, I have every, I have no good thing. I have every good thing in you. And because of that, because Jesus has died, he has been raised from the dead, he has gone into heaven, incredibly, going back to the beginning, you can partake and you can enjoy someone who is truly glorious. And that's what your soul is so thirsty for. You're thirsting for glory and you want it so badly. You can have it in Jesus Christ, but you can't have it in yourself. It's elusive. Whatever that next thing is that you think will, you'll get there and you'll feel that sense of worth and value that you've dreamed of, it's elusive. You either will never get there or when you do, it won't be that great. And that is such an annoying part of being a human being. But that annoyance is there to lead you to someone who is truly glorious, who can truly satisfy 
your soul. On that final day, you'll stand before the Father, and you need to remember you will not be the first human being who has to stand there. You know he'll be standing there with you? You'll be standing behind Jesus. And God will look at Jesus, and he'll look at you through Jesus, and he will say, you are mine. You are mine. You have every good thing in my son, and you are welcomed into heaven. How have you been answering that question? Who can enter into the presence of the Lord? It's only through Jesus Christ. And if you enter through Jesus Christ, the gates of heaven are open for you. You can have every good thing in him. Let's pray. Oh God, we cry out for you to continue to do this transforming work of grace in our hearts. We're so grateful, Lord, that you are our resurrected king who leads us into heaven. Lord, we pray that for those of us who know you personally, that we would stand in your righteousness and not in our own merit, that we would lay our deadly doings down that we would, we would stop trying to be good enough for you and we would recognize that through Christ we are accepted and made righteous. And I pray for anyone here today who is still trying so hard on their own to please God in one way or another, trying to rationalize their goodness or their badness. Lord, I pray that they'd be able to leave that and set it aside and instead adopt a different truth that Jesus Christ has died, that Jesus Christ has been raised, that Jesus Christ has gone to the Father. He has pled the, the merit of his perfect righteous blood. Sin has been paid for, and that we all would be able to say, apart from you, Lord Jesus, I have no good thing, but in you I have every good thing because of what you've done for me. I thank you in Jesus' name.